Let's pray. Our Father, wherever we're listening uh, from today, pray that you would help us to put distractions aside, to listen really well, to hear what you're saying. Pray that I would speak really clearly and truthfully now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, sometimes you can have something that is good, but not really desirable, like a, a COVID swab, for instance. Now, I haven't had one personally, but I hear they're quite painful. Nonetheless, very necessary, very good. Or vegetable juice, not that tasty, but really good for your health. Or sometimes it goes the other way, things that are uh, desirable, but not really good, like um, loads of a trashy TV show, or perhaps uh, eating 12 chocolates in one evening. You might want to, but perhaps not very good for you. What's something that's both good and desirable? Can you think of something? There's probably lots of ways um, to potentially answer that question, Uh, but the answer this psalm gives uh, may not be one of your top three. It says, the law of God is good and desirable. Uh, Listen to verse 10 of Psalm 19. It says, God's decrees are more precious than gold, uh, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. God's law is both precious and delicious. It's precious, we'll see, because it reveals things to us that we can't know otherwise. And it's delicious because what it reveals turns out not just to be cold, hard truth, uh, but the truth that God has good for us. God's law is something that we should treat as precious and delicious, more so than anything else. And that's what I want us to get today. I want us to understand that, but also to start treating God's word in each of our hands that you might have right in front of you right now as precious and also delicious, delightful to you. So that's actually where we're going over these next two weeks as we look at Psalm 19 today and Psalm 119 next week. Uh, But to begin, we need to zoom all the way out, all the way out from God's law to even a bigger scale, to the scale of the whole universe. Uh, Because this psalm is kind of like a funnel pushing in from the scale of the whole universe in and in and in, like a homing missile finding its way towards a target. And the structure is pretty simple. Uh, There are six verses about nature and all of humanity. Then there are five verses about God's law and his people. And then there are four verses about you and me. And as the psalm zooms in, we see God more and more intimately as he's known by more and more personal names. So let's begin in the first six verses about what nature reveals to all humanity. Verse one, we hear the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now I got a uh, pretty good astronomical telescope uh, for my 18th birthday. I was was pretty into space and uh, I use it off and on, but recently I brought it up to uh, my place from my parents' place. And uh, I was looking the other night and I saw Jupiter, And I saw four moons of Jupiter. I saw the cloud patterns on Jupiter. It was amazing. That kind of stuff blows my mind. 
I don't know what it is for you when you look up at the sky. Maybe it's not planets, maybe it's stars, maybe it's, it's clouds, perhaps it's a, a, a wonderful sunrise. But when we look up at the sky, we feel something. It feels awesome. The Psalms say that there's actually a message there. That though the heavens don't speak in audible words, that they still pour forth speech. They do say something non-verbally. And they say it continuously. It happens day after day and night after night in verse 2. And they say it universally. Their voice goes out uh, into all the earth, their words to the end of the world in verse 4. See, it's accessible to anyone, regardless of where you live on our globe, regardless of when you live. And what are these words that the heavens, that the skies speak? Well, they reveal knowledge, uh, verse 2. They tell us something that we wouldn't know if we didn't look at them. They tell us, firstly, of the existence of the creator God. Sure, you can look at the sky and you can believe that God doesn't exist. Lots of people do that. You may even be one of them today. But the Bible maintains that as creatures within a creation, the creator is perceivable from what he has made. This is sometimes called general revelation. Of course, it doesn't tell us everything about him, just like looking at a piece of art can tell you some things about the artist, like his existence, but certainly not everything, not details. But it's enough to tell us some things about God and to whet our appetite for more and to ignore that inkling, to ignore that, um, uh, to squash down what's, what's evident before you, that's the responsibility of the viewer. That's not the problem of the creator or the creation. In our New Testament reading from earlier, the Apostle Paul makes the point that even before he's spoken uh, the words of the gospel about Jesus to the people outside of Israel, that message has already been anticipated uh, by the creation. And Paul quotes this very psalm in support of his argument. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, he says, their words to the ends of the world. And so the skies tell us that God exists, but also that he's a God of order because the natural world is a world of order. Uh, Look how the sun is described in this psalm. Uh, One particular example taken from the heavens. It rises at one end, makes its circuit to the other. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like an athlete running the course laid out. It's deliberate. It's regular. And of course, in our time, we know more about how this ordering takes place The course is marked out for the sun by the laws of gravity. Uh, We can predict not just that the sun will rise each morning and where it will be in our sky, but where the planets will be, where even, even comets will be. The natural world is full of patterns and order. It's awesome. It's glorious. And the God who made it is a God of order. I wonder if you've, you've felt that awe recently. I wonder if you've seen God in nature? Have you given yourself uh, the chance to, to watch, to notice, to enjoy, to be, to be sensitive to the contours of creation and to the marks of the creator? Nature's order tells us that this is a characteristic of its creator. And these words, though inaudible, are accessible to everyone 
as the sun is visible to everyone, as nothing is deprived of its warmth. But the beauty and order that we see in nature, that's not the thing described in this psalm as more precious than gold or sweeter than honey. It does nonetheless tell us something of God's law, which is described that way. See, just as the sun traces a predictable course guided by an underlying order, so human life should move. Just as the law of gravity articulates how planets move, carefully ordered, so the law of God articulates what life is like, what it should be like for human beings. And not in inaudible words, uh, as in nature, but in clear, unmistakable, crisp words. Uh, in this second part of the psalm, the psalm, we zoom in further. In the first stanza, the word for God has been uh, the Hebrew word El, which is, is, is a generic term for God. But here in the second stanza, it's Yahweh, God's personal name uh, that he revealed to Moses. Uh, it's probably written in your Bible as, as Lord. See, God wants us to know more about him, know him more personally and more about life through his law. While the warmth of the sun and the proclamation of the sky is general, available to everyone, God's law is special. You need to actually hear it or read it. And guess what? That's what we're doing today. You, here, me, right now. We are listening to, we are reading God's law. It's available to us. Have a look at what we learn about the law in um, uh, verse 7, which is a, a summary for what follows. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. And the word for law here is, um, is the Hebrew Torah, which you may have heard of. Uh, but uh, our translation, law, uh, kind of sterilizes it a little bit, misses something. It makes us think perhaps of, of the kind of the harsh fine print of legalese or something like that. Like that. But the root behind um, this word is instruction. It's about guidance for life. It's a word that can refer to um, lots of different things. It, it refers sometimes to the actual law of God that he gave his people, the written instructions, the Ten Commandments, um, or to the first five books of the Bible, or, or to the entire Old Testament. In the broadest sense, God's law is an articulated way of life, almost what might be called a worldview explained and exemplified uh, in the whole of God's word in the Bible. Uh, for the, the psalmist, the Bible he would have had would have been the first five books and perhaps a few more. But for us, the articulation of this way of life has been, has been extended. It can be seen in the actual laws given to Israel, the Ten Commandments. It's also contained in this very psalm with its insistence that, uh, that this law is delightful and life-bringing. And it can be seen in Jesus' life, who was the perfect expression of a life lived following the law. This psalm describes that law, that word, that way of life as perfect. That is, it's lacking nothing. It's full and whole. And it describes its impact. It renews and impacts the whole person, the soul, and refreshes it. And the, the word for refreshing has a sense of, of turning around, turning to the right way, conforming to this grain. 
Then in the second half of verse seven and, and onwards, we look at this law, this, this articulated way of life from some different angles, using slightly different words, each with their own nuance. Statutes there in the second half of verse seven has a sense of a warning, like a, a sign perhaps on a road, warning of a, a treacherous cliff. Uh, precepts are like uh, directions pointing you along the right path, um, like your Google Maps perhaps. Decrees are a judge's proclamation of what ought to be done in a particular case, how things ought to be. A fear of the Lord is the posture that underlies this way of life. And you can see what the law does too. It makes wise the simple. That's not uh, people who are foolish so much as those who are inexperienced as yet, uh, I guess, unschooled in the ways of life. It brings joy to the heart to be lined up with the moral order of the world. It lights up the eyes, giving understanding of how the grain of the universe runs. It brings purity. It is righteous. See, God's law articulates an underlying moral order that he has made, just like, just as real as the laws of gravity. The law doesn't reduce freedom, but rather it brings freedom by allowing us to live how we were supposed to to follow the grain. It's like a track to a train, like a water to a fish, like a score to, to an, an orchestra. It gives us an interpretive key to life that can be found nowhere else. And that's why it's so precious. For example, God's word tells us that humanity is made in God's image and therefore Every human person, regardless of where they're from, regardless of what they look like, regardless of how much stuff they have, regardless of if they've even been born yet, has value. The law's precious because it tells us that. It tells us that our hearts are not made to be greedy, um, to be merely filled up with, with stuff or great experiences or even the best of human relationships, but rather to be satisfied by God himself. See, these are things that we might try to learn from experience or experimentation, things that we might have, I guess, some success with learning because uh, they are part of the order that God has built into the world. But the Bible is so valuable because it reveals this order to us. It reveals things we could not know any other way. It uses poetry and narrative and images and metaphor to reveal the way that our world really is that there's a God who is there, who speaks, who wants relationship, who wants to be worshipped because that's what brings lasting joy. It's complete, perfect. Nothing else does that for us. That's why it's more precious than gold. And we get a sense that it's not only precious, but it's delicious, it's desirable too, sweet to taste like honey, living uh, in this grain, the grain of the universe, that is good. But to really appreciate its sweetness, we need to zoom all the way in. Now look at verse 11. The psalmist says, by them, your servant is warned. Your servant, the writer identifies himself as a servant of God. See, zooming in, this is not just about coming to terms with some words on a page, but coming to terms with God himself. The psalmist describes himself relationally as God's servant, one trying to do his will. 
So you can't just love, uh, you can't love this word just by appreciating it from a, a disconnected point of view. And so we're at our, our last point, which is you and me. It's about us. So you can look at the wonder of the heavens and not give thanks to God. You can appreciate the sheer beauty of the Bible, its coherence, the wisdom that it has in it, its continuity. But if that's as far as you go, you're missing something. See, we need to zoom all the way in now, in from the sun, which is evident to everyone, in from God's law uh, given to all of us here today. And uh, we need to look at you. We need to look at me personally and individually. So we have access to this wonderful law, this life-giving guide, this articulation of moral order of how the world is designed. And yet this servant who's writing this psalm, this servant of God, sees that he is not ordered in the same way, in the way that the law speaks of. Look at verse 12. Who can discern their own errors, he says. And, and he says, forgive my hidden faults. See, when held up to the mirror of the law, the psalmist can see that his life doesn't actually conform to it. Indeed, he's saying he wouldn't have even realised many of the points at which it uh, diverges if it wasn't for reading the law, the light given to his eyes in God's word. The law here, it's like a a doctor listening for an irregular heartbeat, diagnosing something that's wrong with you that you can't tell from the outside. But more than that, the psalmist knows that even when he's aware of how his life should be, he's still liable to commit willful sins when he, when he knows exactly what he's doing. See, he wants God's law to shape him so that he's, he's blameless. And that doesn't mean without sin or without fault. He's already admitted to that. But he longs to adhere to this order communicated by God's word. And he knows he needs God's help to get there. Look what he says, keep your servant from willful sins. It's a a prayer. May they not rule over me. He knows that he doesn't have capacity to do this. He's not like the sun in the sky that traces carefully the physical order laid down for it. No one fully traces the moral order that God has laid down for us. That's why in the final verse, he speaks of God as his rock and redeemer. God, the solid, order-bringing, dependable rock, is also redeemer. We've zoomed right in from uh, God being referred to just as God, to him being referred to as Lord or Yahweh, his personal name, to here in this uh, last verse, uh, to being called rock and redeemer. A redeemer, someone who buys you out of slavery, uh, slavery to another order, another way of living. This redeemer was revealed by zooming in even further, even beyond this psalm, beyond this psalmist's experience, hundreds of years later, when the one known as the word came into the world in human flesh, Jesus Christ. He had no faults, hidden or otherwise, He lived a perfect life, empowered by God's law, which he knew intimately and deeply. He took the words of Psalms on his lips. His life is the encapsulation of the entire law of God. 
It's the commentary on it. It's the best example of it. And then living a totally ordered life, he let the disorder have its way. He gave himself over to death and became the redeemer for all those ruled over by sin. So to love, believe in and trust the law is ultimately at its most focused point to love Jesus. To order your life as it should be is to trust Jesus, the word, the redeemer as saviour and Lord. That's the place to start. That's the, the foundation to put in place around which the rest of the house can be built. And check this out. The faithful servant is actually like the heavens and the sky, like the sun. Uh, See there in in verse 14, uh, he talks about words. And that word for words is is the same word used for speech in verses 2 and 3. See, the one following God's law is supposed to be an illustration of the order that it articulates. Outwardly and inwardly, the words of the mouth and the meditations of the heart are supposed to be so in order that they themselves, like the skies, like the heavens, proclaim the glory of God. Well, God's law ultimately expressed in Jesus is both precious and delicious. It's both of those things. It's right and it's good. It's precious because it reveals to us the moral order of the world uh, And we can't know that any other way. It's delicious because it reveals not just a a hard truth about the world, but that God has good for us in the way that he's made things and redeemed things. Is it precious and delicious to you? I think we more easily get the wonder of nature as we look at the rolling skies. But the expansive precision of the heavens, the sun in its ordered circuit, even better is the word of God, perfect in its expression of moral order. Even better uh, than that is Jesus, the word of God incarnate. Let's pray. Father, uh, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.